Welcome to Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church and senior partner at Dendros Group. Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions I hold are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Don Eubanks, Associate with Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. So today we have one of what we call our grab bag episodes. Uh, There's so much going on and every now and then we have to just have conversations like we do when we get together around the dinner table, on the porch, with libations, with our friends and have a conversation that just goes all over the place. So today we're going to have a little bit of a grab bag. There's a lot of stuff to cover. So I'm going to frantically try to move us through a bunch of the things that have already come up just as we've been talking together as a group. Now, if you are like me, me, my daughter have been watching the the snippets of the hearing of uh, the confirmation hearings for um, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, who if um, if seated will be the first black woman uh, well, she's the first black woman nominated for the Supreme Court and will be the first black woman seated on the Supreme Court. So huge historic moment. And as we sat to watch this huge historic moment, we then have some of the clowning. Because while we sat down to wrap our heads around, you know, very intricate questions about law and, and all those kinds of things, we see senators pulling out <laughs> storybooks and throwing dog whistles left and right. So I got to check in with y'all. <laughs> Have you been, you know, as you've been watching this unfold, what's been coming up for you as you see this historic moment happen in front of us in the backdrop of a whole bunch of other historic things happening at the same time? As much uh, respect as I've had for Judge Jackson before, the hearings, I have so much more now. Every time I watch, and I try not to watch a lot just because I get so angry and I feel like it's very bad for my mental health. Um, but she's just, she's she's able to keep it together so well in, in the face of really poor questioning um, from a lot of folks who I have felt have used this opportunity to um, not even ask her questions, but just tell her things that have happened. They've used the time to vent about certain things or certain ways previous um, nominees have been treated. Um, And then they'll look to her and then they'll say, what do you think about that? (laughs) And wait for a response. And her responses are always perfectly worded. She takes the time to put them together so well and she answers them in such a graceful, professional manner where she would say things like, I was watching Lindsey Graham question her, and she would, she'd just turn around and she'd say, well, I just learned about this from you two minutes ago, so I don't think it's fair for me to make a judgment on that. <laughs> and he would just go, oh, that's exactly the answer I wanted you to say, because you shouldn't be able to make judgment on something you just learned about two minutes ago. I was like, that was not the answer you was looking for. <laughs> like, you know, and I just felt like the, the, it was a, 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 tra- a trap. Like, I feel like they're trying to trap her into a, a gotcha moment. And it makes me so uncomfortable and it makes me so angry. And she just does it so gracefully. And, you know, you know, here's the, the, of course, there's always the late night, you know, jokes about like, oh, I'm sure she's not going to cry and tell us how much she loves beer, you know, and those kinds of, <laughs> of jokes, you know. <laughs> but So we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we first um, 
when there was all of that, just a hoopla behind President Biden's announcement that mm-hmm. he would be selecting and ultimately appointing uh, the first black woman to the U.S. Supreme Court. And we talked about how her vitae, her qualifications are stellar. I mean, right. She is head mm-hmm. and shoulders above not only the current sitting justices that are there, <laughs> but folks before her and that there is there there they're resorting to these tactics that both Anthony you and and Hale just mentioned that are superficial because substantively there isn't anything there to question because she's got this pedigree education she's been a, at the top academically um and and she she has reached pinnacles in multi-forms that other justices only reach perhaps one pinnacle, right? So there's there's that. And then the second part that really strikes me, and I haven't been able to watch, I only will listen to snippets here and there on the news, uh, NPR and things of that sort. But what really strikes me is, and this has been the question in my mind, more rhetorical than anything is, do you think any one of these congressional members, particularly those who are adverse to her questioning, right, would have the stamina to hold the composure that she's been able to hold now for multiple days. That's one. The second thing that comes to my mind in question is, who among any of them, and quite honestly, any of us, can look at our careers and not have any blip in that career, right, in terms of uh, a judgment call that you reflect on now, 20 years later or 15 years later, heck, three years later, two weeks later, that you wish woulda, coulda, shoulda done something differently on. What I'm getting to is there are these high horse expectations that she's got to be perfect. Yet the people pointing their fingers at her having to be perfect are not perfect themselves and could never be perfect. And her predecessors, folks who are on the bench currently, Supreme Court, including the last two appointments, are less than perfect. Mm-hmm. And, and that is the most offensive part of all of this to me is, is they don't think, and maybe they're under the mis, you know, misleading um, mindset that somehow the American public doesn't have the insight and intellect to navigate the through these shenanigans for lack of a better word and that's offensive it's like you're that's an insult to our collective intelligence that you think we're not seeing through all of these shenanigans that you are coming up with especially a couple of moments in 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 one of the days of hearings where they were uh, some of the senators were corning, trying to corner her into responses about decisions that she made in previous in her previous record, which of course they got to have in front of them, and she didn't, right? Because you're not going to have every single decision you've ever made and notes for them just in front of you for every single every single thing. But what, what was what was striking to me, and I ended up having to have this conversation with my daughter, is is some of the normal patterns 
and, and not normal in a good way, but some of the patterns that we encounter on a regular basis as people of color um, from folks who, who want to derail a conversation from the, from the subject at hand using some of these tactics. Uh, I'll give a couple of examples. One of them was when um, they were trying to corner her on her views on critical race theory, which is a talking point that's out there for, mm-hmm. for some folks in our, in our society. Um, one, who have very little understanding of what critical race theory is, and two, are trying to make it a deal when it's, 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 a, collegiate, it's, a, it's, it's a collegiate examination of racist policies throughout history, right? If, if, in the most simplest a- explanation of it. So it doesn't touch what she's doing and it doesn't touch, um, it, it, it's not even taught, taught in schools, and yet, it, and yet we try to use this as a platform to talk about something over here that actually, you know, riles my base, but doesn't have anything to do with what's here, that kind of flip. This is something, this flip, we encounter this over and over again as folks of color, whenever we try to, especially when we're trying to address something with nuance, and that could implicate <laughs> uh, the, the very folks we're talking to, there's that forced digression or subject change, that, that, ju- that judo flip that comes in there. The second example, the second piece that comes in is when they try to corner her on a decision uh, that she made in a case involving a young man who had just graduated from high school. Now she's trying to to school the senator at the same time about what judge's roles is. And I thought it was very interesting that in trying to corner her, she did something that I thought was amazing. And that is she stood up for the role of judges across the country. Can you imagine if, if, (laughs) if, politics in the Hill were allowed to creep into the decisions of judges. Now, we've seen that in history against mm-hmm. people of color. We don't want to talk about that. <laughs> but 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 in standing up for that, I think it's another way that underscores what you were talking about, um, and that not just her decorum, but her brilliance to try to pull this back. And see, I saw her trying to pull everybody in there back to the subject at hand for her own confirmation hearing. I just, I, I think it was, it was masterful and unfortunate that these racialized patterns we cite on the display I would say that it's not that they don't fully understand what critical race theory is, it's that they don't understand what critical race theory is, period, in the way that they are presenting this, uh, presenting it in court. And also um, that they really, the senators really bank off of, of people not understanding what each person's job in government is and what they have jurisdiction over. Mm-hmm. So she says this several times when she's being questioned about critical race theory is that she her job does not involve selecting curriculum. <laughs> right? That like that doesn't come up. That's not part of her job. And so to spend so long on asking her about it, she and she says it. She's like, um, well, you know, she really didn't give a, a, a straight answer about it because she kept saying it has nothing to do with my job. Right. Like if you were interviewing for a job to stock shelves at a grocery store and then they ask you if you're a cat person or a dog person, it's like what that has nothing to do with my job. So and she's just and again, she's extremely graceful in answering that. But also in that a lot of folks um, in the country and this this goes back to, you know, again, everything is interconnected. Right. The education system of, of us not learning that much about how our government works when we're in school. And I'm working with a, a, a woman, and one of the things was, oh, maybe we should talk to your state representative, Samantha Vane, Representative Samantha Vane. So invited her down to the Capitol, do an interview with uh, Representative Vang. And when we got back to the office, she was like, did you know Representative Vang lives across the street from me? 
I was like, yeah, she, she's from your district. She's like, yeah, she's from my neighbor. I was like, yes. <laughs> Representative Vang used to work here. And she's like, really? She's like, so she's not a lawyer? And I was like, no, she's not. And, and it was like, there was this moment where we had of like, explain to her, no, you don't have to be a lawyer to run for office. You don't have to have, you know, those sorts of qualifications. And it was like a moment in her brain. It was like, wow. And I said, you could do it too. <laughs> like, you know, you could run for office. You could run yeah. for, you know, if you don't want to run for state representative, you can run for school board. You're really concerned about these issues that are affecting your children in school right now. And, you know, it's just giving like these opportunities for people to even learn about that. So then when they're watching these things or they hear about it on news and stuff, they they don't a lot of times, or maybe they don't even realize that those folks aren't these super brainiatic people who gra- graduated from Ivy Leagues. They're just regular folks who have gotten elected into these seats, you know? And so they think that these people have all the qualifications to ask Judge Jackson all these hard questions, but they don't. <laughs> just like Luz was saying, she's the one with the qualifications. Right. <laughs> And if you have any doubt, just listen to the nature of the questions that mostly are not even questions. You know, they're they're posturing uh, because that's what that's the best they can do. Sorry to say, you know, in terms of, again, she's so solid with her qualifications, uh, but also they're unable to rattle her. Right. And they haven't. What do you know? What do they have left is basically just fill the dead air with posturing uh, and speech making and, and, you know. Luz, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, uh, just because of your background with expertise on this, um, is, is, is it also, you know, what, what more is there to find out that she just went through this entire process for her, her appointment to, was it the court of appeals? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's so, the other thing. Yeah, yeah. So they haven't, they've already, I mean, they've already asked her all the things, you know, that's right. Necessary yeah. for this level of, of work. Yeah. There's there's a, a term that we use in in our profession, asked and answered, right? Mm-hmm. It's been asked and answered. And so all of this really, again, is showmanship, right? I mean, there hasn't been that much that has changed in that process, but they're unwilling to surrender to that. So they're going through these antics of, you know, creating dust uh, for the sake of confusion, but not because it's effective and not because it's going to yield any valuable or new information. Yeah, I, I will say, as long as we are on the topic of the Supreme Court, while this is going on, I don't know if you folks know, but the first Latina to be appointed to the California Supreme Court just happened. Hey. Uh, yeah, Ooh. Judge Patricia Guerrero. I'll say it in English, Patricia Guerrero. Um, <laughs> was just confirmed, uh, you know, um, first Latina to be confirmed to the California Supreme Court. Grandfather was from Mexico. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's the American dream, you know, and uh, it is possible to go through a confirmation process. Of course, this is different. It's, it's a state Supreme Court rather than uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, but nonetheless, it is another story during Women's History Month uh, that has been made uh, history again for our, our women. I have not been watching the confirmation hearings, and 
after listening to the three of you describe what has been happening, uh, that's exactly why I haven't watched it. Um, you know, there were, it, it seemed like it, she's going to be confirmed. There's nothing in her record that, I mean, you know, normally they're, they're trying to dig up dirt. There's nothing, absolutely nothing for them to glom onto. So it's all political posturing and they're just playing back to their base. I, unfortunately, when I watch those, yeah, it gets my uh, blood pressure up and that, that's mm-hmm. bad for me. You know, mm-hmm, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. like to get my blood pressure up. So I just don't watch it at all. And then I just watch for the comments, the commentary um, on either Fox and or whatever, because they're going to be commenting about it later in the news. For me, you know, this woman is absolutely brilliant. You know, Anthony and all of us, you know, what were we taught when we were kids? You know, my dad, I was taught that in order for me to succeed as a may, a black black indigenous individual in this country i was going to have to work and do things twice as twice as hard or twice as better as my white counterpart and we have a prime example of judge brown being a shining example of this to 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 your point uh don you know er, earlier one of the things that i think and 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 as 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 we move on cuz we've got other things to cover but one of the things that that um i think is also brilliant is she keeps re- she kept referring uh specifically um in some of the questions to the disparity and i think it's very important for us to 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 see some of the ways in which she has been able to demonstrate not only her her thinking there was one questioning around um you know the original you know the the is she a, an original doctrinist like like Scalia was or or you know does she believe in the constitution as it is or that it's a breathing document they tried to keep pigeonholing her into specific stances that are unnuanced and un, unsophisticated and she did not take the bait and i just i i, I think there's a lesson there for all of us to to not take the bait when we're fed, um, you know, these these erroneous talking points, um, and 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 tries to corner us into ditching the nuance and complexity of our arguments and our conversation, right? For these simplistic sound bites that that make it easy to play to uh, to one's feelings or base, and mm-hmm. I think that's that's coming up also with the new movie that's out. <laughs> so so. If you haven't seen already, there's a movie called Turning Red, Disney Pixar, um, and and it it seemingly was going to be part of the Pixar formula. We watched it, didn't think that there was any 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 issue there, and all of a sudden now there's some quote unquote or some attempt at generating some controversy. So, <laughs> please go, tell us about oh, what's coming man, up. Oh man, you guys! Red. If you have not seen Turning Red. You should see it. It is so good. It's been watched more in my siblings' household as much probably as Encanto at this point. <laughs> I mean, it, yes, it's about a, a young Chinese girl. She's like 13. She's going through puberty. She gets her period. She finds out that the women in her family turn into red pandas when their emotions become overwhelmed after hitting puberty. Um, it's a lot, it's, it's a lot about her relationship with her mother. Um, it's a lot about how young women are, you know, growing into finding their own personalities, their own likes, dislikes, um, discovering crushes, 
you know, those sorts of things, following around, you know, having a crush on a, a boy band, right? Um, it, it's super relatable in that sense. And like, my sisters were texting back and forth. We were all texting like, oh my God, that's me. Oh my God, that's mom. Oh my God, that's you. That's how you treat your daughter. Oh my God, I'm, you know? Uh, and all the, uh, literally every one of my cousins, friends, distant colleagues, whatever, who have seen it, who are A, either Asian or B, women, have just been like, what? the? the I feel so seen. There were points through the movie where I, I could tell my husband, Jim, who's like an older white guy from Duluth, right? was like, huh? And I was like, oh, man, I'm screaming and I'm laughing. And, and you know, whatever. But it was, um, you know, it, it, it was so important because I have nieces at that age. And I just remember being so awkward like they are. And, uh, you know, I asked my sister this over the weekend. I said, you know, has she been watching? What does she think of this movie? Because when I first heard this movie was coming out, I texted my sister and I said, you have to make her watch this. And she said, oh, you know, yeah, she really liked it. She's, she actually watches it by herself. And I've heard that a lot from folks is that little girls are watching this without their parents to better to because they feel more comfortable even in like, oh, I see now how I can handle this, this situation of going through puberty, you know. And I just think that's so amazing. But it seems that white people have a real issue with this movie. <laughs> well. Well, we can, we can, so, so, so <clears throat> go ahead, go ahead, Lee. <laughs> no, uh, the first, one of the first reviews that immediately came out from Cinema Blend, uh, which is like a website that they review movies, talk about movies, et cetera, et cetera. And this came from their like um, managing editor. And it's really, he basically just says it's not relatable. Uh, it, it, it's only relatable if you're an age, a Chinese girl from Toronto. Which is really weird because if you watch the movie, the only mention of Toronto is that she rides public transportation in Toronto. That's it. That's the like. That's really the only mention that they're in Canada is because she rides public transportation. Um, but uh, I'm going to read just a line from, and he has since apologized and has retracted his review, and they have assigned it to someone who would understand the concept better. Which, whatever. But he says. Um, it reminded me of the far superior The Mitchells versus The Machines, another film that focused on a female character experiencing a major life change, but one that also remembered what a broader audience will be checking the film out. So it bothered to include plot elements everyone could find engaging. Well, guess what The Mitchells and The Machines is? It's a movie about a uh, white family in technology. <laughs> the thematic split that tears turning red to shreds is the mystical red panda bit. Apparently, because they don't have them in North America, it just is unrelatable, <laughs> which is radically different from the grounded teenage girl faces fears of growing up. Uh, another review from a white couple was that it was extremely uncomfortable. And it's like the uncomfortableness was talking about puberty in your parents. So, you know, Hilly, as a black indigenous individual, I guess I would male on top of that, baby boomer on top of that, I guess I would be part of that audience that this uh, this animated movie was supposed to be totally unrelatable to. And, uh, you know, we watched it um, a week and a half ago, and it was a mo touching, moving little film. I, You know, for myself... 
it made me think, you know, because I remember, well, I don't know if I should go there, but, you know, I have a daughter, right? And and I, and, and I, watch rem- out, man. Watch well, out. She's going to listen. Well, she can come I'm, up on you. Well, she's, I don't think she listens to our podcast, but, <laughs> but, you know, but I remember that period. And so I would, you know, I would, I was trying to reach her via through her mother, um, you know, and, and be supportive and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, you know, cause it's kind of a, not, not so much awkward as it was something that we never talked about when, when I was a kid growing up, you know, that was something, mm-hmm. conversations between my mom and my sisters, but not me and my brothers and my dad. So, but when you have a daughter, you know, it, I knew it was happening. And so I, I wanted to be a part of that. This, I thought, I thought this thing would have been a great vehicle to help have that conversation with my daughter, especially when she was at that age. And she was also into boy bands. I mean, it was totally relatable to me as a parent. <laughs> yeah. There was I mean, nothing in there that, that was not unrelatable. And, and as it was dealing with, with the, uh, you know, her, her developing her own self identity, versus the demands that she was getting from her mother, you know, that reminded me of that other fantastic movie we all went to go see years ago, Crazy Rich, uh, Crazy Rich Asians. I mean, the, the similarities in, in those relationships that were playing out. So for me, it was totally relatable. I'm going, oh, okay, so this, you know, this theme is, you know, part of the cultural fabric of of uh of that community and um and which is totally relatable i mean you know i i'm learning something and at the same time i'm laughing because my daughter went through the same damn the same kind of stuff <laughs> with her boy bands and justin bieber and while you know i'm a dad i can't understand all that stuff but watching this thing was just so enjoyable and then when I hear people are going off the deep end, oh, it's like, oh, for what? Let me let me take you down some rabbit hole. Now, now, let me be clear. This movie made me uncomfortable. I'm one of the folks that this movie made uncomfortable. But Say not more. for what? the reason. I'm getting, I'm, I got you. I got okay. you. Not for the reasons that some of the things in the rabbit hole that I, that I heard, right? So one, my wife went had to go toe-to-toe with a Facebook troll on this <laughs> Did she get put in Facebook jail again? No, no, no. It was brilliant. Her response was absolutely brilliant. But but you have folks who are trying to tie this into, you know, you know, trying to push into your living room and interfere with your kids and teach them to disobey their parents and, and oh, all these yeah. other things. Here here is what made it uncomfortable for me. What made me uncomfortable was how much this movie is is reflecting our own stuff back on us as a parent watching this when i watch the interactions of the family members and the stuff that we put on our kids from our family baggage and all of that i'm going oh man oh man does that how that come out oh man there's a point where <laughs> point where where the parents completely disregard what the kid is telling them how often do we do that as parents i think a big piece of the uncomfortability that folks are trying to search for is that this movie as did Uncanto Encanto and mm-hmm. Turning Red have both mm-hmm. started to dress and challenge some of the baggage we have in our communities of color that we don't often have airtime because we're so focused on just present uh, on presence in the, in the from the beginning that when we actually dive into the stuff in our communities, like there's stuff there to talk about that we often 
try not to talk about it in front of white folks because white folks use it against us against with all the other stuff that go along with that. But that that's what made me uncomfortable here is is how much this was real. The the part where the and I'm not going to give away the plot pieces, but and it, this was in the in the in the trailer preview trailer. So I'm not going to get any, no spoilers here. But there's a point <laughs> when as things are going, the grandma and the auntie show up. You know how many times that's I've us. had moments. That's me. I'm that auntie. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, those, I'm the auntie in like the sweat outfit. The, the Ooh, I, yes, I was. I was. Lee, you popped into my head when I saw that too. But 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 that's it, it. There are things that we need to address. And this movie starts to call those things into question. And so if if it's if it's not relatable, I think one of the things that is not relatable about it is that finally we have movies that are starting to ask some hard questions of us in ways that we aren't comfortable with. Remember all of the, there was this attempt at controversy for the movie with the emotions that came out, where all the emotions were different colors and there was a the girl kind right. of dealing with her emotions, stuff like that. And you have this, 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 the the main characters in there and the love and friendship that they were, they were building around it was these two characters that were in the emotional space. That made a lot of folks uncomfortable. And you heard, False cries about indoctrination and 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 you know this is too mature for kids and all these kinds of things. I'm like, really, mm-hmm. for real? So that's what made me uncomfortable. Is that it was coming straight down my lane, forcing me to have to look at my practice as a parent. Do so I even Anthony, listen to my kids? You know, when you when you there's so many points that you made there that that I think we we should unpack a little bit further. First of all, I mean, <laughs> you have to laugh at this criticism that. This is somehow indoctrinating your children to go against your parents or challenge your parents. That's the definition of being a teenager. I mean, what teenager do we know that doesn't challenge your parents and say no? All of us were there, right? So so there's that, right? That that makes no sense in my mind. The other part is that getting for a woman to get her her period, biologically, that's what happens. Like right. So seeing a cartoon or an animated film doesn't begin to influence the causation of that. It will happen earlier Mm -hmm. or later. It will happen to every girl pretty much unless she's got some hormonal, you know, concerns that and her body is not going to go down that path. But largely speaking, that's a fact of life. And Mm -hmm. for me, the idea of having boys at a very young age understand the complexities that Mm -hmm. accompany a girl's journey and struggle with having her period on the, you know, every single month is necessary because then guess what? Those boys will be sensitized to that and they will be hopefully in my mind, the incurable optimist that I am be kinder (laughs) to the girls in their network, to the women in their network, to the sisters, right? I mean, I think about some of the, the childhood experiences of some of my friends who they were in so much physical pain every single month with cramping mm-hmm, that they would mm-hmm. lay in bed crying in tears mm-hmm. because it was so difficult for them. And it impacts impacts girls very differently, right? Or the embarrassment that girls, the humiliation that some girls in my network at the age 11 started menstruating without any, it's not like you get a memo, like on this day it's going right. to happen at this time, <laughs> right? So they're at school completely mm-hmm. unprepared. And mm-hmm. then they have this happen to their body, right? You talk about trauma, you talk about mm-hmm. being scarred for life. Like those girls grow up women that they never forget 
going through that, right? So my mm-hmm. hope and expectation is that by highlighting this uh, in a movie, that this will hopefully sensitize others to be more empathetic and understanding of this this difficulty that women and girls go through for the duration of their life until they get into mon- menopause. And I would say, you know, that hope that boys would better understand. I, I've seen it. It's happening. Uh, my niece, who I was just describing, is going through this stage right now. I have a nephew who is right around that same age, and they're best friends. Uh, they're first cousins. They're best friends. And he, when he watched it, he said, oh, I know what that is. <laughs> and he goes, and you know, and he he got it, and he understood, and my sister was able to have that conversation with him mm-hmm. for the first time without him going, ew, mom, I don't want to talk about this, oh, and running away, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. then his younger sister, she's eight or so, and it went right over her head. People are complaining about, oh, my five-year-old was wondering what this is, and it's uncomfortable. Kids that young, it went over their heads. It goes over their heads. It's barely in the movie. Right. They never actually said she got her period. They never right. show it. It's just implied. It went over her head. She missed it. She was so into the whole boy band thing. She missed the whole puberty thing. At least for my family, there was this opportunity to have these conversations with their kids about body parts, what happens every month, especially for for their daughters. Um, mm-hmm. Another thing I've heard a lot is like, People are saying stuff like, oh, this is what happens when women start taking control of the narrative, right? Encanto, turning red. They talk about generational trauma, something that Disney Mm -hmm. hasn't really touched on before, and it makes people uncomfortable. One of the reviews Mm -hmm. from the White family was that they made the mom the villain, uh, and they made the grandma, you know, the grandma... The grandma from Encanto was the villain. There's no villain. They're not the villain. It's not like there's a princess stuck in a castle and there's a villain. This it's not a villain. It's it's trauma that they work through throughout the movie. And and this is this is the <clears throat> I think that right there is one of the centralizing pieces that make this so important and compelling. Encanto and now here turning red and I can't I can't wait for the ones that continue to come. Um largely because it is it is it is the conversation that we are having that we are engaged in growing up having to deal and process with these things and to be able to 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 address these one of the things that is 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 really striking in this film is the relationship between the mother and the daughter i think it's it's very important for us to see um you know what happens when we as parents just to turn the dial right back into ourselves when we project our trauma onto our kids, our experience, our way of life, and don't leave any room for those kids to come back to us and say, here's how I'm encountering this world very differently than your own, mm-hmm. or you know, here's where I'm at. I mean, there's there are some important scenes in here. I'm not going to give away spoilers in there, but I would, I would warrant folks who haven't seen it yet to look at the ways in which the relationships develop over time. It really pushes some different uh, conversations. Uh, it, it, it harkened back for me to watching Joy Luck Club with my Asian friends and looking at the interaction between the mother and daughter in that exchange. Now, of course, you have to pull through a whole lot of Asian stereotypes just to get the movie made, but there are some some things, some some issues that are brought up that are uncomfortable. There are some issues in this movie that we going to have to talk about at the dinner table at some point as a family and we go it's going to be tough to do it it's going to be uncomfortable 
But this movie pushed that, and I, and, I, and I really think that that's something important for all of us to take away in a general sense. This is probably what makes this a great movie, in my opinion. Each passed down, similar to what you're talking about, because, you know, you could see that. Because it's funny, you know, we spent so much time talking about uh, this young girl's period. That wasn't even a big part of the movie. That You know, it, it was just the fact that she hit puberty, and then she started turning into a red panda because, because you know, when she got emotionally upset which wasn't tied at all to her having her period and, at all, you know? And so, but the generational thing, you know, and I, and, and you're exactly right because I think that's where it makes, it makes people uncomfortable when they have to look at that because we as adults have to look at how we may be passing that down. And, you know, as a Native American person, I can see that, you know, we talk about the historical trauma, and we see how that impacts each generation. And so, you know, this book, The Yellow Raft and Blue Water, was a great example of it. And the last, the young lady, what, what the reason why I got so hooked into that book was because she was a Black, Indigenous young woman. And, and you know, something that, that I, as a Black, Indigenous individual, very seldom see in print. Or, you know, or hear of any other experience. So, I mean, all these, I mean, that's why I thought, you know, the Red, uh, Turning Red was such a great little film because it, it hooked me in so many different ways as a dad. You know, I, I even had conversations with Mara during the movie, you know? There's an interesting tension that's being raised in that regard, like to, as you reflect on that, Don, and I'm and I'm curious about about your thoughts on this, Clee. There are some generational differences between my friends and their parents in reaction to Red Panda. <laughs> so we have older folks who felt like there was a call out for culture here. Um, that is kind of like how we have a conversation. We may air a little bit of some dirty laundry, and and it can feel like it's it's diminishing the culture, or it's or it's putting the culture in a negative light. So there's some folks who got some of those feels off of this, and in Kanto. <laughs> um, go ahead. You know, for me and my and the people in my circle, when we talk about it and stuff, I think we're just we're just so happy to to see representation and sometimes it's easier to laugh uh, than cry, mm. right? Some of the things that the mother does mm. in the movie that are not good, <laughs> things yeah. you wouldn't want to do <laughs> to your kids, we laugh because, you know, we'd say stuff like, oh my God, my mom would have done the crazy mm -hmm. thing that the mom did in the movie and we'd laugh about it now, right? In the same sense that I think that if my mom watched the movie – and maybe I should just watch the movie with her to see her reaction. She'd be like, I would have totally done that to you if I saw a drawing that, like that. <laughs> and I'd be like, I know, I know you would have totally done that. And we would laugh about it. I mean, I, I totally think that that's <laughs> what the reaction would have been. <laughs> There's this moment of like, wow, we can't believe that something so mainstream has picked up on something in our lives. That's never happened mm. the before. nuances. Right, yeah. that's never happened so, before. If we think about, you know, the points Anthony and and Hli and Donna you just made, one thing that really comes to mind is it in my mind, it is healthy to have these level this level of tension, you know, in terms of reactions to whether it's a story that you listen to, 
a book that you read or a film that you watch and that you're able then to discuss it with your family members and beyond. Because think about it. The only way that any one of us grows emotionally, professionally, intellectually is to experience something that is different than what we thought. Yes. You know, our own beliefs, right? So it's not until we get ourselves outside of our own usual protocols and usual approaches that we start to learn something. So that's the other problem with with this criticism for me is why are folks afraid and not wanting to have these healthy conversations in your home? Because we know that communication is really key in any relationship, whether it's a family relationship, a friendship, or your relationship at work. And so through these different points of view, we learn and we grow. So I'm thinking, so are these folks stuck? (laughs) They don't want to grow. They think they know (laughs) it all. And there's no room for them to develop further emotionally. I don't know. Well, one of the things that, I don't know if it's the anti-Asian sentiment right now, but some of the other criticism that doesn't make sense to me is stuff like, oh, the animation sucks. The animation is not as good as previous Pixar movies. Um, There's not very many there's not a lot of music in this film. Like, there's the boy band song, but people are saying stuff like, oh, the music's terrible. <laughs> like, really, you're nitpicking and all these things that you've never nitpicked on before with other films or, you know, things that, what is it about this film that has you so heated that you're picking these things up? What is it about these things that have you so heated up? Is Please, it the anti-Asian I, I thing still? Actually, oh, get out of my head. Get out of we're my head. We're a year out from the Atlanta killings of yeah. the six Asian women. We're still getting reports of... Uh, mainly Asian women and Asian elders yep. um, being attacked, killed, uh-huh. uh, stalked. I mean, it's it's continuing. And now we have this great movie focusing on an Asian family and people be hating on it. What is happening? So I flee, I think I think you have have tied in exactly where my head was going in, in that regard. I, I think just like this movie makes folks uncomfortable because you can see your bad parenting or the things that you are like you might need to visit as a parent on display i also think this film starts to do something that that um a natural defense can rise in you in and that is it starts to humanize when we start to get movies that chew on the the intricacies and nuances of real lived experience the things that we need to be talking about in our communities there's a level of of arrival that comes with that where now we're in a space where we got to start dealing and processing with all these, but that also has the effect of humanizing folks who we've been able to fetishize and otherize for so long. If I'm forced to have to think about the thing, the nuance that you've talked about in terms of some of the cultural things that are present in this movie, that also means that I now need to start humanizing Asian identity, which means then I have to address my indifference to Asian hate and all of the other things that may be inculcated in me this is where I'm starting to see a lot of things in society, you know, that force us to have to humanize, also force us then have to look back and say, where was I silent? Where was I complicit? All those types of things. And so I think there is absolutely a vein to be explored around the connection to nitpicking things that are just not true, just because I have to have something to say. Because what I really want to say is I'm uncomfortable about the, about humanizing 
a group of folks I've been able to fetishize and, and put largely in Chinatown or in fast and in delivery menus. <laughs> Even modernizing, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Because people would say stuff like, well, we liked Mulan. And it's like, yeah, but we don't <laughs> wear those outfits all day. We don't wear white makeup with a little red lipstick. We don't do that. We don't fight with swords. Asian people don't do that nowadays. It's mm-hmm. the same thing with Pocahontas, right? You know you've made it now, Haley. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when you think of like Asian people, it's not like we're walking around in kimonos every day and stuff like that. And that's what people imagine. <laughs> When they think about Asian movies, they think, well, we like Milan, so we don't hate Asian people. But then this place takes in Toronto and they're wearing Western clothes. It's in the Western world, modern Western world, right? People are just like, what? They can't comprehend that they're in that mm-hmm. environment that they live in now times. Well, and it's also, it's, it's also, it goes what you folks are saying, but also my my question is along the lines of, trying to reconcile that, um, you know, Asians are this model minority and, and they fit only in certain boxes, right. In terms of the STEM fields and being this or that, and then this takes it outside of that. And so it goes to your point, Anthony, of humanizing beyond what these stereotypes Mm -hmm. are and challenging the othering part of it. You know, when we think about the, the women who were killed, um, here in, uh, just actually in New York. So February 13th, Christina Yuna Lee uh, was stabbed 40 times in her apartment, uh, and less at about a yeah less, less than a month previous to that, Michelle Alyssa Go was thrown from a subway platform uh, in New York City. So both of these uh, horrific um, killings of of Asian women happened in New York City. And we're coming up, as we said, oh, we just came up on, on a one-year commemoration of the killing of the six Asian women in massage um, spas uh, across three of them in, in Atlanta. So we think about how folks are framing and thinking about this. Are they connecting the dots is my question, right? Um, and how are they reconciling these dissonances in their minds in terms of what, like you said, Anthony, what role they play and the expectations of it and and how they have to reconcile with being uncomfortable with who they are and what these isms are and that they continue to hold about what will be here shortly the largest community of color in the country surpassing mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Latinx community, right? right? I mean, these are some heavy pillars that folks have to reconcile in terms of living in the United States and what their general beliefs are about uh, the API community. Well, whether whether we're talking about um, uh, the humanizing presence of the hearing of Judge Jackson and the hearings that she's having to experience, um, this new movie, and here as we commemorate this anniversary, as we address Asian hate within our own society. I think that really encapsulates those pieces of this grab bag episode. And that is, you know, the things that are coming that are starting to humanize us in ways that are different. And it's making folks uncomfortable. And we're seeing responses accordingly. And unfortunately, some of uh, as people of color, when when dominant culture gets made uncomfortable, 
we, our defenses automatically had tend to start having to go up because some of those responses can be violent, whether they are, are attacking your, your credential, whether they are attacking your right to exist or even be, or whether they're physically attacking um, your person. We have to contend with these things as we seek in ever more to try to get ourselves humanized in an everyday way in the ways in which we consume media. We're going to break right now for our, at our, in our grab bag episode and shift to a uh, conversation. So Luz, we're going to say goodbye to you. Thank you so much for being with us, Luz. And, and um, um, I'll give you the last word on uh, the humanizing portion of our grab bag episode. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I love my counter stories crew. So I'm going to just sign off now. Uh, and, um, I'm sorry to miss the, the following conversation, but there's good reason in terms of the position that I hold, uh, in, in my employment. And I, I want to make sure that we delineate that line very clearly. So I'm signing off. This is Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any opinions and thoughts that I've shared are strictly my own and, uh, should not be attributed to my employer. Take good care now, folks. Talk soon. We, we, we cannot move past this grab bag episode without talking about the decision in the district court um, to, uh, to side with the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe um, in the treaty boundaries that were set uh, in the back to the 1855 treaty boundaries. Don, do you want to school us a little bit about what's gone down here? There's a history here. Well, you know, twice I was uh, worked as commissioner back in the late 90s is when uh, the Mille Lacs Band actually won hunting and fishing case. The Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, upheld the fact that we had always retained our ability to be able to hunt and fish over the ceded territory. And there's, there's all this language, yeah. you know, is confusing to individuals. So when, when we deal with treaties... We're dealing with agreements between sovereign nations, native tribes, and the United States. And I won't get, you know, I'm not going to get into the complexities of those discussions because clearly history has shown that the U.S. federal government had clear things in mind mm -hmm. as they entered any negotiation with tribes. And the first one that was signed by members of the Mille Lacs Band and other tribes in the state of Minnesota, as well as the Dakota, was the Treaty of 1837, Absolutely. where the Ojibwe and the Dakota agreed to cede their land to the federal government and for promises of payment. And I won't get into all that, but these are what we call session treaties. So the United States at this time in Indian country was going throughout Indian country, entering into these treaties, getting the, getting the sovereign nations to cede this land, which is what um, the federal government was after. They were after the land. Think about this. We're dealing with, with, with two totally different frames of mind. We're dealing with Europeans who came over here with this idea of land ownership, of owning property, including humans, mm -hmm. whereas for Native communities, it was about living in harmony with one another, with the land, with everything else. There was no, there was no attachment to, to material wealth. What you had, you kind of gave away. 
But our forefathers had the wherewithal that even in the 1837 treaty, they agreed that um, the U.S. agreed that we could continue to hunt, gather, and collect the things on the land, even though we were ceding it to the United States, we could still use that land for our livelihood. That's how we lived. We were hunters, we were fishermen, we collected you know, uh, berries and whatever. And I point that out because often the dominant culture, members of the dominant culture will refer to that as us being granted special rights. Mm-hmm. We weren't granted any special rights. That was our way of life. Our forefathers fought to maintain that way of life. What though in, in the 1837 treaties, what that did is it established land bases between the Dakota and the Anishinaabe to the federal government. So first they establish what that land will be. Then in 1855 and after, we call those the succession treaties. That's where they now came in and took that land and created reservations. Mm -hmm. So in 1855, they created the Mille Lacs Reservation which was just one tribe that was signatory to this treaty. But the original reservation consisted of 61,000 acres. Even in 1855, the state of Minnesota was not a state. The state of Minnesota didn't become a state until 1858. Mm-hmm. So, you know, years after that, that treaty, then finally Minnesota Territory became a state, and then Wisconsin became a state. So once the states gets involved they start applying more pressure to the federal government that, you know, they have all, you know, we've got all these different reservations, 11 in the state of Minnesota, and we've got seven Ojibwe reservations. So there was, the state was applying pressure to the feds to try to put all the Ojibwe people on one large reservation. And so there was some movement between different tribes to this one large reservation. But the Mille Lacs ban refused to move under this mm-hmm. pressure, right? That's why sometimes when you see the name, the Mille Lacs ban, the non-removable Mille Lacs ban. But never was there any language or any congressional effort or anything written anywhere that dissolved the Mille Lacs Indian Reservation. Well, one of the counties that the Mille Lacs Indian Reservation um, resides in after it was created is Mille Lacs County. Mille Lacs County, ever since we won our hunting and fishing (laughs) rights, has been taking the tribe to court Mm -hmm. to prove that the original boundaries no longer exist, that the Mille Lacs ban is only comprised of the land that was put in trust and the land that it has since purchased since that time, which is a small fraction of what our original reservation boundaries were. The ban has always contested that nothing dissolved the original boundaries. And this is the decision that Judge Susan Richard Nelson came down and sided with, is that those and her decision was that there was no language nor 
congressional effort or anything that dissolved the original boundaries of the Mille Lacs ban and that it still exists, much like the ruling that happened in Oklahoma this past mm -hmm. summer, right? Where three quarters of that state is still Indian country. It was never dissolved. It was never, never dissolved. It's still Indian country. Uh, and of course, Mille Lacs County is going to contest this ruling and again, probably take it to the to the right. uh, Supreme but, Court. So they're saying, the county is saying that the there's no longer a reservation that the tribe owns the land that has since purchased, correct? But why do they think that? Like, where did they get this idea from? Uh, because it it's it fits. I, well, I can't tell you why. I don't I, know. I'm reading why. articles and stuff about the situation, and they believe that the reservation was dissolved. But why do they believe that? Where are they getting that information? What what are they pointing to that says this is where it says that? Why do they believe that? Why does the county believe that the reservation has been dissolved? From the some of the attorneys that they hire, you know, I I really don't know what's mm -hmm. deep rooted within some of those elected officials, some of the, the the commissioners. I mean, I could see, I could, I can hear, or I've witnessed some of the ugliness of what happened, especially during. Um, our hunting and fishing rights trial, you know. Oh, every time the fishing opener comes around, like the walleye and that, it becomes a big issue. Well, well, this is a very important. Uh, something Don said earlier to that point, Lee, something Don mm -hmm. said earlier is very important. The 1837 treaty was, when, when, he, when Don, you said that these treaties are always entered into from with where the federal government has always come with something in mind to these treaties. Mm -hmm. And 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 so in 1837 it was the logging, it was the white pine logging industry yes. in the in the in that area that was that was at, at issue. There was the thing that was trying to be negotiated around. In in the Treaty of Achota that 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 forced the removal of several different several tribes in the southeast of the country, it was done specifically to open up the land for um, for for slave farming in the area. And so, so there's always something in mind. So the 1837 was logging, the 1854 was mining in the Arrowhead, and then the 55 was another set of things that you were alluding to. Um, well, the 55, um, so the 55 created the current reservation. Created the current reservation, right? So, so, so right now, you know, I think that lake and and, and fishing and 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 all those those industries that are bringing in tax dollars. I think are absolutely a part of, of I, I, a part of. I don't know if all of it is, but part of. Yeah, there's always some reasoning for the for for the dispute of that land. Does it have anything to do with policing, or how the tribe handles or monitors crime on the reservation land? I'm just trying to get a good grasp of the issue. You know. This this has been an interesting point. I was reading. I, w I was looking at some of the some of the, um, the the points of issue that were here because there's a lot of thing going on into community trying right. to scare folks into thinking that you know they're they're living in this area. What's going to happen to us now? Are we going to be pushed off our area? And 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 to be clear, and and every all the legal pieces around us are clear. Nothing's going to happen to you. 
right? Like, like, and and to that point, Lee, there are because of some past uh, um, court decisions, there are limitations on what tribal police can do for non-tribal residents um, in a particular area, and so all of that scaring about. Um, you know, oh, we're going to get pushed off of our land. We're going to get, you know, policed by a tribal tribal government or all those kinds of things. Those have already been settled in statute and agreements. And so there's been, oh. but there, but still there has been hmm. things that are put out into community trying to scare this up in support of the, of the county. Exactly. Right. I mean, th- those are, those are kind of uh, fearful scare tactics that individuals in Mille Lacs County have used right. to rile up residents now this uh federal judge upholding that language that the original boundary still exists that now includes uh three townships right it includes more than that but but the towns of Wakan Isle and Onamia now fall within those original borders always has now the band doesn't own all that land but once tribes became self-governance, and then the Mille Lacs Band was one of the first tribes in the United States back in the late 90s, early, late 80s, early 90s, to become a self-governance, self-governance tribe. And that's another whole show just to talk <laughs> about that. They created their own tribal police, had no jurisdiction over non-band members. So the right. tribe reached an agreement with Malax County to count to uh, deputize the tribal police that allowed tribal police to work pretty much like a Malax County sheriff. And they were then able to help Malax County and provide those kind of police services throughout the county. Four or five years ago, Malax County ended that relationship and refused to re-sign a new agreement with the Mille Lacs Band because they wanted to contest the fact that we still exist. That's and that's the that's the piece right there, right? Kevin, to contest your own existence. And this is in the backdrop of the fact that this is native land, period. So, so so this is this is an interesting I think it's it's another interesting exercise in addressing what has gone on in the past for too long many folks and many folks who have resided on on um tribal lands throughout history forget that history and then you know there's in in some cases when you were talking about when we visited Melax man right there are folks who have houses that were leased for a certain amount of years but those leases are coming up and then are getting mad as if they're getting pushed off their land when their agreement is running out. That was happening up at Leech Lake. At Leech, yeah, absolutely. But but in other parts of the country as well. So so the land in question with Isle, Wakan, with Onamia, the tribe doesn't own that land. But we never, but the boundaries of the reservation never were dissolved. So that those they just fall within. But that, you know, it, it because even though those tracts of land were lost. The reservation itself was not lost, did not go away. And so this is why I was bringing that up is because we're such poor students of history generally <laughs> that that it's so easy for us to forget that all these things are in play, have been in the mix. And so then you see, you see um, this story hit your newsfeed and you're like, whoa, all of a sudden, to you it's all of a sudden. 
But to folks who have been fighting this for, for, for years and years and years, there this has a whole lot of history to it. And 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 it allows it makes it easier for folks to use the kind of fear tactics um, that that put pressure and and can and can interrupt what should be legal proceedings and, and and remain legal proceedings. One of the things that I think is very interesting is that for tribal members who live and work on the reservation, one big benefit of this change is that they don't have to pay state income tax in this new area. That's a huge piece of the of the puzzle. So when we think about the reason or the causality of, of why folks are resisting that, because you may be taking some of that tax base out. The other piece to also have to think about, though, is that, as Don had already said, the Supreme Court has already limited the authority that tribes have over non-tribal members living on reservations, which is something that's going to have to be figured out, yes, but it doesn't change anything for somebody who's already, who's, who's, who's already in that space. Um, so the tribe can't tax non-tribal members of their land. In fact, I don't, I don't think the Malax ban even taxes anyway. You 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 don't you don't do that. You don't have that set up in your government setup. But but I just I want to I want to put some of these onto the table to just showcase how much we have not been schooled on the civics of this history, um, and that needs to be a part of our of our, our thinking as we go forward. And that's even before we get to the fishing issue, which I think is one of the most central drivers of this. Malax is a is a is a statewide treasure for the fishing and game industry and and this always and this continues to be a point of contention. And every year the the argument um for not allowing band members to to fish or net when they're not allowed, is that it's their livelihood, these resorts, right? But it's also tribal livelihood, right? Do you think, and again, this is me not knowing this stuff, are they pushing for the dissolving of their reservation because they no longer want to give tribal members the right to um, hunt and uh, net and, um, you know, harvest? Not all, but some of the citizens in Mille Lacs County opposed uh, the band's efforts to retain their hunting and fishing rights. Um, you know, that original charge was actually led by, uh, by all folks, uh, uh, Bud Grant, you know, the ex, mm. the ex coach of the Minnesota Vikings. And I thank him to this day. Mm. Um, and it kind of twisted because the original agreement that the band reached with the state of Minnesota the Mille Lacs ban agreed to give up 95% of our hunting and fishing rights to retain 5%, just a tiny portion of Mille Lacs. Mm. The ban was going to give up everything else in the ceded territory, and Bud Grant and those folks opposed that. And so the state legislature did not ratify that contract. And once the state did not ratify that contract, the ban said, fine. We'll go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court upheld our hunting and fishing rights throughout the entire ceded territory. So it worked mm-hmm. out better for the ban. And let's just point out. I'm sorry. I want to. I want to point this out that the ban, and this is this is this is the DNR study and stuff like that. We want to talk about managing the population and managing the natural resource. We just want to point out that the Malax ban has proven to do a better job managing their fisheries and managing their 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 their, their eco impact than we have as a state. I just want to point that out. Right. And the fact that, you know, when when people think of us hunting and or netting or spearing or whatever, 
Um, the Mille Lacs Band is, what, little less than 4,000 tribal members. Over half of that are children. So now we're talking about 2,000. 50% live off the reservation. So now you're down to 2,000 individuals. You break that down. So we're talking a small number of Mille Lacs band members who actually exercise their rights to, to fish. We're talking of, into their quotas. Exactly. For, for we're talking a very years. small amount of individuals, right? And I used to be one of those individuals till my knees got so bad that it's hard for me to get in and out of the boat. But, you know, regardless of that, Mille Lacs County has, um, through the years, opposed the ban. And, and one of the reasons is that, you know, they're always trying to prove that we don't exist. Two other times, um, the, this question ended up in Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has sided with the tribe. Mille Lacs County then has to end up paying their court fees and the Mille Lacs Band's court fees, which adds up to about two, three million dollars every time they take us to court. And they've lost every time they've taken us to court. You would think the residents in Mille Lacs County would get tired of paying three, three million dollars of tax fees every time they decide to take us to court. But that's what ends up happening. And so even with this ruling, Mille Lacs County are putting their marbles in place and they plan on, on uh, you know, objecting and, and probably taking us to the Supreme Court. In, in her 93-page ruling, um, Judge, <laughs> Judge Nelson, um, fed, you know, this, in this federal court ruling, Judge Nelson spoke to the fact that over the course of more than 160 years, Congress has never clearly expressed an intention to disestablish or diminish the Mille Lacs Reservation. I mean, that's just a little little excerpt from that 93. So it's an extensive ruling that's been given here. And that tracks with some of the other rulings in other places. And it's got some folks being concerned because we've never, you know, the quote, Congress has never done due diligence in some of these areas to, 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 to solidify and codify the land theft in, in, in federal guidelines and statutes. And so we have these treaties, which are treaties are the law of the land. And so now we have to go now, now these are, are, are coming up and it's forcing us to have a courageous conversation, quite frankly. And, and, but it behooves us and all of this, we have to get the counter narrative to what we have been given over time, because I think what's going to come full front and cir circle is as these legal battles and, and fights are won because of the treaties that are here, right? They're, the only way to redress this is going to be through congressional action. So there's going to be the political marshalling that has that's going to begin to happen to try to fight or redress um, honoring these treaties. And so I think it's important for us to know this history because that is something that has not only happened in the past. Folks tried to marshal Congress to deal with something because legally they had no recourse because the law was pretty clear on the rights for, for sovereign nations have to get around that some other way. And so that's why I think it's important for folks to be able to connect the dots in some of this counter-narrative that Don's been mic-dropping on us today because the battles, this isn't, this legal win is not the end of the battle. And unfortunately, even while the legal case is going on, we have the legislative case that is that that may come to, to bear at some point as well that's going to require us to know what's going on. 
Y'all, we've hit everything from Supreme Court to um, new Pixar, Disney Pixar movies to the anniversary of the killings, the spa killings of Asian women and, 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 and assaults on Asian women across the country. And of course, to treaty boundary issues. This is just touching, scratching the surface. So for those who want to continue to, to as my family would say, put some fat on your head, check us out at Counter Stories. Go to thecounterstories.com. Um, check us out on our Facebook page and, and social media feeds. Get connected. Go to your podcast and download because we're going to need to be diving into a whole lot of things. This has been awesome, y'all. I appreciate the conversation and the things that we've been able to touch. That's it for Counter Stories today. My name is Anthony Galloway. I'm a pastor of St. Mark AME Church and senior partner at the Dendros Group. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and Counter Stories producer. And I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Malax Banner with Ojibwe Indians. This has been Counter Stories. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the Other Media Group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.